0: welcome to inside ir a podcast series by herbert smith freehills that explores the latest developments in the australian industrial relations landscape
1: hello and welcome to inside ir the australian industrial relations podcast the series that arms hr ir and legal professionals with the latest in industrial relations thinking my name's rowan doyle and i'm very excited to have with us today partner colleague and friend tony wood
2: Hi, Tony. Hi, Rowan, and I'm glad you're excited. You don't often say that to me, so I'm delighted that you say it this
1: morning. Or the camera's on, so we'll put that (laughs) on. Yes. Uh, But great to have you. Uh, You've got, I think, around about 30 years of experience in advising employers on what workplace change, bargaining, and a whole range of other bits and pieces. So very- I
2: uh, prefer when you say 20 or so years rather than 30.
1: (laughs) Well, it's closer to 30, I think. But um, very interested in your insights, particularly on the topic that we have in store for today. We are going to be shifting gears a little we've done a lot of talking of late about IR reform uh, and there'll be more to come on that in future podcast episodes but For the moment, life goes on in the meantime, Tony, while we're waiting for bills to become acts and so on and so forth. Bargaining is still happening across the country. Employers need to get deals done, get sensible deals done on uh, reasonable terms and conditions. They need to manage industrial action. They need to resolve disputes. And all of that is going on as we speak. So we thought it would be a good time to perhaps share some insights on what we're seeing, Tony, in the world of enterprise bargaining and share some of the tips and traps uh, that we're experiencing in our practice. So I know, Tony, you've got some very interesting thoughts to run through with us today on the enterprise bargaining environment. And we also know you're a big stats fan,
2: Tony, big fan (laughs) of statistics. I love statistics and I love the new Fair Work Commission data that they're putting out as well. So we'll we'll make a bit of reference to that, Rowan.
1: That's great. So we'll work through that as, as we go as well. So if I may though, Tony, I might just set the scene in terms of the bargaining environment that we have today because I think it is quite a unique bargaining environment and probably one that we've never seen before, frankly. Uh, We had a period during the pandemic where bargaining effectively ground to a halt. Uh, Not much happened for a good two years, uh, for good reason. But we're now seeing the consequences of that hiatus in bargaining. And we've had, um, I'm not sure this is necessarily borne out by the statistics, but certainly in our experience, we've had a backlog of deals that uh, have been expired, and that have been waiting for renegotiation. We're now seeing the consequence of that in an uptick in bargaining, Mm -hmm. an uptick in protected industrial action, um, and an uptick in probably disputation more generally. Um, But the environment feels different, I think, Tony. It's a different dynamic to what we've experienced uh, pre-pandemic. And there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. And that's where I thought we should start. Be very interested in your thoughts. How is bargaining different now versus pre-pandemic and why?
2: Yeah, well, It is a unique environment, Rowan, and it's something that therefore we haven't experienced before. And we're also coming off a, a, a number of historical lows, historical lows in terms of uh, wage outcomes, historical lows in terms of uh, lost days through industrial action or strike action. So that has to inform the way that you look at all of this. Um, what are we seeing? Well, we're clearly seeing a significant increase in bargaining and you know, bargaining claims, um, to some extent, bargaining disputes, and we'll, we might have a look at a bit of the data on that. But anecdotally, we're certainly seeing much heightened expectations on wage outcomes. It's hardly surprising given the, uh, the national wage case decision from the middle of this year, obviously. And we all, when that happened, we all you know, had in our mind, and I know our clients did expectations that there were going to be 5 or 6%, just regular deals rolling out. And despite the initial flurry of demands, and we're still seeing AMBIT claims in that respect, on the ground, we're not actually seeing those outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it might be early days. And it's probably fair to say that a number of parties are going through bargaining. They're not getting as much traction as they might expect. And many of them are still waiting, or many of the unions at least, are still waiting for some legislative impetus Uh, to come and give them a boost, whether it's same job, same pay or a variety of other techniques that, that, that Labor has in mind to enhance their bargaining power.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned wages, Tony, that might be a good place to start. What is the data showing in relation to wage outcomes at the moment? Are we seeing the 6%? Well,
2: anecdotally, you and I would probably share the same view that we thought that that would happen. We're seeing the claims and the ambit demands in that respect, but on the ground, I've been surprised to see in some fairly uh, well-entrenched industrial environments, you know, claims for 5 or 6%, but actually ending up resolved at 3%. And that's pretty consistent with the data. There are two sources of data. There's kind of the ABS data, which relies on the Department of Employment uh, uh, data itself, which is a bit of lagged um, data. Uh, so, we, But we're seeing that creeping up from a 2.2 percent during the, uh, the pandemic or December 2020 up to 2.4, 2.6 and now 2.8 percent. Which on, is pretty consistent
1: reason. with the history, though, Historical isn't it? Because trends. you look back 10 years, yeah. and yeah. generally the average wage increase in an enterprise agreement is somewhere around the twos, mid twos, mid to high twos, pretty consistent.
2: And I thought, well, how does that translate to what we're seeing in the commissions data itself? So the commissions data. That, I mean, I, I'll tell you one thing credit to Ian Ross and what he's done in the Commission. Their, their, their websites, their information portal, and their data is, is unbelievable compared to what it was five or 10 or even 30 years ago, right? Absolutely. Um, so, what we're getting is real time data coming out virtually fortnightly demonstrating what agreements are being approved. And even the most recent form of that data is showing, a, if you like, a 3% average um, annual wage increase which is just slightly different from the ABS departmental data. So real-time data, it's worth subscribing to that, by the way, as any clients can do, just getting on the Commission's website.
1: Yeah, and it is having an impact. I mean, we're, we're hearing um, hearing people actually refer to that information, in the context of bargaining, particularly on the union employee side. It's information that previously people didn't have to hand. It's almost real-time, yeah. isn't it?
2: It is real time and and, and at yeah. the moment it's consistent with the historical trend, more or less. Yeah. I mean, 3% is creeping up, no question about it. But if it creeps up to 3.2, 3.4%, as I suspect it may, given the high inflationary environment and the union expectations, well, that feeds on itself. And that then creates even further um, impetus for unions to hold out to want to reach the average, which itself is creeping up. So we'll see this really curious impact of the data and whether it actually drives behaviours from unions as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. So in summary, not a huge shift in wage outcomes so far, but still a lot of pressure and we're seeing it come through in the in the claims. But on claims more generally, Tony, I mean, what are you seeing in that space? Are we seeing any difference now as, as compared with pre-pandemic?
2: Well, I mean, clearly we're catching up on the lag. So the number of disputes are increasing. Um, Interestingly, when we're seeing the Parbo applications, particularly bargaining order applications, we're seeing a, a, you know the, the list which is getting longer and longer and longer of the claims and demands. So all kinds of real finickety, or is it pinicety, claims and demands um, that are really annoying have maximum impact for on on employers, but minimum impact on, on unions and employees. And of course we know how difficult it is to calculate you know, deduction of wages for partial work bans and so on. So we're seeing more and more of that. But we're not seeing necessarily employers making uh, challenges to those PABO applications. Are you, are you seeing that?
1: Uh, n- probably not as as much as we should. And mm. I mean, I agree with your observations. We're seeing lots more um, protected action ballot applications coming across our desk and lots mm. of different types of yeah. industrial action referred to in yeah. them. But, but I, I agree, it's worth looking at challenges to the nature of the action that's referred to in those applications, because often it's insufficiently clear. No one really understands what... Uh, the type of action is that's being voted on, and as we know, uh, there is an opportunity uh, to contest applications on that basis. And the real benefit benefit from employers, I guess, is to um, remove the uncertainty as to what the industrial action might ultimately be when it's taken. And I mean yeah. there's a real opportunity for negotiation there as well, Tony.
2: Well, there there are to negotiate. I mean mm. most employees, when they face industrial action, they're concerned about obviously the impact of strikes. And how they can mitigate that impact, but there, there are some things they can do in negotiating with unions at that stage on the parvo application by seeking certain insurances or undertakings in relation to uh, maybe even safety concerns uh, that might be able to be to be implemented and. I'm seeing some success, and some unions, often reluctantly initially, but in due course of being, you know, in the face of some kind of, you know, pedantic challenge that an employer might be able to make to the um, to, to the parbo itself, being able to relent and and get some concessions. So it's certainly worth pursuing, I think.
1: Yeah, and I mean, at the next phase post pabo we we are you've mentioned this lots, seeing lots of different types of industrial action being proposed and then and taken. Mm. I think generally speaking we're seeing more of it being notified now than perhaps we did traditionally pre-pandemic. Um, I mean ordinarily you would see um, the uh, concept of the PABO being obtained, the declaration of results being issued, nothing happened for 30 days, no industrial yes. action. Yeah. You then get an extension application and as we know that can be extended to a maximum of 60 days before yeah. the action has to be taken. Yeah. And um, it, if anything, you might get a little trickling of industrial action towards the end of 60 days. Yep. I mean, me, myself, I'm seeing more industrial action being taken now rather than it being used as a bit of a shot across the bow and then nothing happening.
2: Yeah, But, but again, not, not lots of strike action. And mm. we don't have a lot of data, unfortunately, on those kind of uh, you know, annoying bans, yeah. or, you know, overtime bans or mm. paperwork bans and the like. And it's not really recorded in any of the data. But you know, the ABS statistics are pretty consistent on this, that we are at this historical low on the days lost um, through strike action or industrial action. Uh, there has been a glitch, by the way, in, um, I think, in the last quarter, uh, but I and we can show this for people who are, who are watching this, um, this uh, podcast, but it's a, I think it's a glitch at this stage. I'm not necessarily thinking we're seeing a trend. The clear trend over 30 years is down, down, down. And we're almost at the basement, to be honest. The increase may be arisen through uh, public sector disputes in New South Wales, I think teachers and, uh, and nurses and. Uh, and that can have a big impact when you're working off a, a low bottom line. So that stuff is fairly, um, fairly clear. The other interesting thing that we're seeing in trend from the Commission's data is uh, the PABO applications. And, and they, they actually really helpfully demonstrate the number of uh, new protective ballot order applications or orders that are made against a five-year trend. And we're trending all of this year above the five-year trend. But as you mentioned at the beginning, Rowan, that's probably associated with a lag impact mm. of you know two years of, of kind of a hiatus on enterprise bargaining, which everyone, by the way, said was the death of enterprise bargaining, which, by the way, it may well be anyway.
1: Well, no, it's I mean, in my view, it's very much alive and well, just judging by you know the amount of um, bargaining rounds that are very much live and intact at the moment, the amount of action we're seeing. But in any event, I think it will be interesting to see the impact of your graph uh, that we've shown on our visual podcast, uh, how that looks in five, ten years' time and whether or not IR reform has a potential impact on the amount of days lost to industrial action. But
2: Well, well I know we weren't going to get into this day, so I'm going off-piece, but um, I will say, well, bargaining is dead in some respects. Mm. It might still be happening in the usual places. Uh, it's not giving outcomes. Mm. Uh, other than, and to be fair, this is a, a very... Uh, clear reason for it wages outcomes because it's been you know bottom lower two percent increases annually for you know 10 years but that and that's a, a meritorious reason to be pursuing industrial action obviously for unions that's the only thing employees aren't getting anything out of bargaining there's no productivity offsets or, or gains and i suppose you know anecdotally uh, are we seeing employees benefiting from bargaining the answer is no But they are getting the benefit, if you like, from having an agreement being made and therefore having protection from industrial action during the life of the agreement. Putting that aside... I reckon my clients, I reckon every one of your clients would would reach that same conclusion. What's the benefit in bargaining other than that? Yeah,
1: no, I think you're 100% spot on there, Tony. But let's come back to, you mentioned different types of industrial action being taken and overtime bans, partial work bans. Now, we're seeing a lot of that. I agree that the the strikes and just flat-out stoppages aren't as common as in the past, but we are seeing a lot of partial work bans, I think in part because... Uh, unless employers take some fairly active steps, there's not necessarily an immediate pay impact on employees. There's, there's not a yeah. blanket prohibition yeah. on yeah. Uh, not paying employees during the taking of partial work bans. But there are options available to employers and they're increasingly being taken up. Tony, do
2: you want to perhaps comment on that? Oh, well, I mean, there are, there are a range of options. I mean, they go through what even we're seeing access to the commission. So uh, I'm tending to find five years ago, we would have said to our clients, our clients would have universe, uh, universally agreed, don't take me near the commission. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want them interfering with my business. Well, in the midst of a more robust kind of union response, it's not an unreasonable thing for an employer to reasonably consider, do I pursue the route of you know, Section 240, which is effectively the conciliation option that employers have in the event of an impasse? And in reality, we're seeing longer impasses because oh, yeah. we're seeing union claims, which are you know, the, the, the typical long list. Uh, of things. Obviously, wages are generally the deal breaker, but a whole range of things job concerning security. job security mm. uh, and the like. So it's harder and harder to resolve those issues. It is. And the longer they go on, the more uncertainty there is in the business and more directors of businesses get concerned about that exposure mm. or the vulnerability and therefore how they can protect themselves from that. So going to the Commission under 240 is, is certainly not the uh, unreasonable approach that it was previously, um, you know, considered to be. Yeah.
1: And there's a few other options available these days, of course. I mean, termination of EAs is almost off the table, but effectively is already Uh, what's left. I mean, you've got issuing non-payment notices for partial work bans. Now, that's something we're seeing a lot more of, Uh, not accepting partial work ban and continuing to pay as normal, but ensuring there's some consequence. The the
2: difficulty with that, and uh, it's just so damn complicated. And to construct, uh, you know, to, to, to have an analysis of what that particular ban is worth in terms of deduction of wages is, ext- you know, you can most of a pull a number out of a hat and, and try and do it. And of course, there is a mechanism for resolving disputes over that with the commission. But they, they're complicated and employers don't like to have to engage in that kind of complexity and unions hate it as well.
1: Yeah, which I think is why generally when you look at uh, reducing or not paying for partial work bans, most employers will opt for the non-payment method. Go the scorched is, earth option. Yes, which, yeah. I mean, my personal view is that it's almost always the better option. Yeah. But <clears throat> that brings us to probably the final option that's available in responding to industrial action, I mean, the, the lockout. How much of that are you seeing, Tony, at the moment?
2: Not a lot. I mean, there's one... Uh, or two in the media, of course, at the moment that that get a bit of attention, but I don't think there's any trend on lockouts. I mean, other than the fact that when the whole concept was introduced into the Commission some years ago, uh, it was seen as anathema and and employers just wouldn't want to pursue that. It doesn't have the same stigma associated with it. I think it is seen as and perceived as a legitimate option for employers to pursue, uh, but it's still seen as somewhat unsavoury, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you think?
1: Now, look, I, I agree with that. But increasingly, uh, employers are being forced to consider it as part of the <clears throat> broader suite of tactics that are available to them, because there's just yeah. not many others left. And I think particularly now that termination of EAs is effectively, effectively off the table, um, you necessarily need to at least think about it. Now, on top of the um, I, I suppose the cultural impact and, and the negativity associated with that. The main reason I think employers are hesitant to do it is because of the triggering of employee response action, yes. which, as we know, enables employees to post the lockout take industrial action with uh, very minimal written notice in advance. Um, one minute notice would be sufficient, and they're then not limited to the types of industrial action that are set out in the protected action ballot order. Yeah. So it, it's pure chaos in that scenario because employers won't know what type of industrial action is being thrown at them. And it's a real disincentive, I think, for employers to, to effectively fight back and look at the
2: lockout. What, but I think all of that goes to show that employers need to do more planning mm. about this and they need to understand what their rights are and what their options are and to understand when there's coercive conduct that might well be unlawful and provide other uh, remedies uh, to them other than, you know, through the commission or through the courts. And sometimes bargaining is... is a painful exercise for everyone to have to go through, and it's sometimes so painful that the thought of it means you you want to put off all of those you know really nasty consequences or, or options that are available. And I think the more you plan for it, the better off you'll be, including all of those contingencies, which mean you know unfortunately resort to you know either threats or or actual litigation.
1: Yeah. No, that's right, Tony. Look, we've really appreciated your insights on the current bargaining dynamic. It's It's been great to hear and also loved your statistics. we uh, have so got
2: more next time. I, <laughs> I do, we
1: look forward to that. Look forward to the next episode. So as always, we welcome feedback. Please send us your comments, direct messages or emails to insideir@hsf.com at hsf.com if you've got any feedback or ideas for things that you'd like to see covered in future episodes. Otherwise, thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you on the next podcast of Inside IR.
0: In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.